We come to the end of this great chapter, John 11, today. This chapter is so amazing because of its positioning. Now, in this passage in front of us, then, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the next thing that we read is in verse 45. It says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. That would be some other of the Jews who were there. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? If we leave him alone like this, everybody's going to believe on him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, and one of them, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And then we read in verse 51, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And now he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. Verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Is he going to come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Notice both the chief priests and the Pharisees. There is a difference. The effective difference is that the Pharisees had no political clout. Their power is pretty much purely religious. Oddly enough, at this point in time, the power of the chief priests is purely political. They're appointed by the Romans, and they are politicians through and through. They're not religious people. They're not godly people. They don't know the Lord. And the reason they come into the picture here, because you notice you don't see them very often. What you see is scribes, you see the Sadducees, and you see the Pharisees. But here suddenly we see chief priests and Pharisees. Why? Because now that it's time seriously to kill Jesus, they need political clout, the Pharisees. They need political power. They need the temple police. They need everybody that's got the power to get him to his death at their service, and thus they enter the stage at this point, those with that power, being the chief priests. Having given the command, if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Now, just to give us a place to hang our thoughts as we move through here, we have the many, verse 45, of the Jews that had come up to the scene of Lazarus and to comfort Mary. Then we have the murderers, and Caiaphas is at the head of all of them. And then we have just right in the end, I want to touch on this, the multitude those who came up to the temple and they just want to see Jesus and they're curious. But to look at the many here in verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. First of all, I want to just take a thought or two on this statement, the Jews who had come to Mary. 
These are those who had come to comfort Mary. Notice it doesn't say Mary and Martha. For a reason, I think, John isolates Mary. We've read through the whole passage and studied it in detail, and the prominent figure of the two sisters is, in fact, Martha, right? And we found out in this passage that Martha has received a lot of bad press. And that if you were ever questioned in a pop quiz, who was the more spiritual of the two sisters, your knee-jerk reaction would be to say, well, we all know it's Mary. She sat at the feet of Jesus. But in this chapter, it is Martha who rushes out to meet Jesus, and Mary stays behind. Mary was more introspective. She was more melancholy, you might say, than her sister, who was the consummate host up and about. But it seems here also, as we put it all together, and I did mention that Mary would have made a good wife for Thomas. The melancholy twins could have gotten together there. It seems that, as we put it all together, Mary had a a much more difficult time dealing with the death of her brother than Martha did. So that Martha is free to be moving around, getting things done that need to be done in the death of a loved one, and her sister is completely immobilized. Now, what this says, I think, is a good lesson for all of us. Because every time one of our loved ones dies, we have this scene. And we need to be sensitive to it. There are those who can deal with it better than others. And some are going to be all undone, and it's going to take them a while longer to get up and moving around just because of who they are and just because of where their faith is. So that there are Jews that come to comfort Mary. And in my heart, I wonder if Martha didn't send out a message to that end. Those of you that know and love her, could you just come and be with her for a little while? She needs you. She can't even get up out of her chair and leave the house. So in the future, because a a few more of us will pass on. In the end, we all will. So in the future, if we can remember this. One of the first things, practically speaking, that will hit your heart when you lose a loved one is going to be, where's that one that needs the most comfort? Because we want to make sure they don't get overlooked just because they're not being very verbal and they're just sort of immobilized. The Bible tells us in Corinthians when it talks about the gifts and uses the body as an analogy that that the weaker members receive more abundant attention and honor effectively to kind of bring them up to speed. And this is just a beautiful picture of that. Just a beautiful picture. So those Jews that came to comfort Mary. But from among them, there are those who come to Christ. Now, when Martha met Jesus outside of this area on the road, and she was all upset that he had delayed, We now know many reasons why he had delayed. He said, if you will believe, you will see the glory of God. So that he was preparing Martha to receive more from God in her walk with God. Not only did she see the glory of God in her brother being raised from the dead because he had her set up so her eyes just wouldn't be on a corpse being raised from the dead, but by an all-caring God involved in this scene and in this great miracle... But she was able to see within minutes after that the conversion of many who had not yet been converted. In spite of all their witnessing, in spite of all their prayers, these people were still unsaved. And suddenly, so many of them believe, it says many. Isn't that wonderful? 
Sometimes you may wonder, well, why does the Lord tarry? Why doesn't the rapture come right away? May I assert to you that if some people, many, who had said that before you were saved, and had prayed that, Lord, come now, you've saved enough. If that prayer had been answered, maybe you wouldn't be here today. I know if anybody had prayed and begged God for that and Jesus had said yes before 1971, then all would be lost for Danny Bond. So I am very glad Jesus has delayed so far further. Can it be that some of you don't yet know him tonight and that he's delaying just for you? Wouldn't it be great if one of you here that that he's waiting for just tonight said yes to Jesus tonight finally believed on Jesus and then we all whoo, go up you're the last person on earth God's waiting for wouldn't that be great you say yes love away we go the rapture happens wouldn't that be wonderful well that's exactly what God's waiting for the last one he knows the last one that will come and then the rapture will happen so thank God he's waited I'm as ready to go to heaven as anybody But I also know that in His mercy that caused Him to wait for me, He's not slack concerning His promises, but He's long-suffering because He's not willing that any should perish. There were many who came to believe in Him that day, and, and the object of their faith was very, very clearly Jesus Christ. There's no confusion on that here. In Acts 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. No other name. That means Buddha's out. That means Muhammad's out. That means Zoroaster is out. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. They were placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And the name has to do with all that he is. You come to place your faith in him as God. You come to place your faith in him as the only begotten of the Father. You come to place your faith in him as the one who died for your sins and rose again. That's the name. That's the one. In John 1.12, and I love this so much, it says, To as many as received him. Here are many receiving him. To as many as received him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I love that. The right. It's an honor. It's a privilege to be adopted into the family of God and have your sins forgiven, to be going to heaven when you die. But it's as many. And yet... Many will say they believe in God. Many will say, well, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know personally in my life, many people who believe in Jesus Christ. They believe he died on the cross and rose again, but it doesn't affect their life. And so in the end, though they may believe that, in the end, practically and in all reality, they don't believe that. Not in a saving sense. I have a tool that I use in the computer and it's called the blur tool and you can take it and just run it right across a photograph and blur anything you want so people I hate that are in my pictures I blur them out just kidding I don't hate anyone just a joke sorry but the blur tool and sometimes I think people say oh I believe but they just use the blur tool mentally on God where is he oh he's up there somewhere you see that that shadow that's him I believe You start to witness to them. They say, you know what? You don't have to worry about me. What you need to do is find that pygmy in Africa. So they say, you don't need to worry about me. I got it covered. I believe. I believe. You're talking to somebody that believes. But you see, you have to believe specifically. What is the object of that belief? To simply say you believe in something up there, someone who answers your prayers and 
and it's intensely private, is not enough. In James 2.19, James wrote, and he said, You believe there is one God. You believe in God. That's fine, he says. Good. But the demons believe that, and they shudder. And the demons believe everything about Jesus Christ, and they tremble. They know who he is. We see them fall down in front of him in the Gospels and declare him to be God. And yet they're not going to heaven. So there is a difference. I remember a phase in my life where I was right there. I remember getting off work. I was a dishwasher. I remember getting off work and getting into the car in back of the restaurant with the cook and the, the chefs and the, all the people above me on the ladder. I was the low life in the restaurant, the dishwasher. And I had quit taking drugs while dishwashing. My nickname in the restaurant was Dusty because I was always dusted, just plowed on dope back there, just slamming those dishes around, you know, get them out. And this one night I came out and I said, well, Dusty is no longer getting dusted. Then I said this, just give me a Colt 45 and I'll be fine. You know, give me about a quart of Colt 45, some stout malt and I'll be fine. I'm no more of this other stuff. And they said, why? What's happened to you? I said, I believe. And then the next night I was off the beer even. This is true. I showed up with Welch's grape juice. And I sat in the car while they smoked dope and drank. And I sipped my Welch's grape juice. And they said, what is this, a gag or something? This is really you all the way. Show up with your Welch's. You probably had it before you got out to the car. And I said, no, my whole life has changed. I believe. And I went about a week like this. I remember hearing the song on the radio. And that's why I believe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. But you see, it wasn't enough. I wasn't delivered. I went right back to my drugs. I became worse than ever. You know, the song actually says, if you've been around long enough, you've heard it. If you've been in a market often enough, I'm sure you've heard it, or an elevator. But the song actually goes, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Well, first of all, that's not even true. I believe that somewhere in the darkest night a candle glows. Well, that's wonderful. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. I believe. Throw a little Dean Martin in there. So, it goes on. I believe above the storm, the smallest prayer will still be heard. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. The Psalms say he doesn't hear the prayer of the wicked. That's a lie. I'm sorry. With all due respect to whoever wrote it. He doesn't hear every word. If you come to him and say, God, save me. God, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again. I believe that if I will place my whole trust upon you, you will save me. Save me now, Lord. Forgive me now, Lord. Take me to heaven when I die. He hears that prayer. But just an arbitrary person, sentimentally believing in God that somewhere in a great somewhere, he's behind the blur tool in the picture, hearing. I'm sorry, it's not true. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry or touch a leaf. That's touching, isn't it? Every time I see the sky then you know why I believe every time I touch a leaf or see this guy, then you know why I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I don't. What do you believe? In a great someone and a great somewhere. What is that? If you're in that place, 
it may sound nice and it may feel good to you because you're not where you were, but it's not enough. Many of the Jews came to believe on Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, who died for their sins. He went right to the cross and died for their sins. That's who you must believe in. There's only one name under heaven, and it's not the great someone and the great somewhere. It's Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, the many, and that's why I believe. Because I know He died for me. Amen? Then we come to the murderers. Now, I want to define the players here because we run into them so often in the Bible and make a few comments as we go. First of all, we have what I call Satan's messengers. In John eleven forty six. it says, But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. These people, I call them Satan's messengers because they are collaborators who receive no interrogation from the Pharisees. There are the Jews that come to comfort Martha. They're friends and they care. But among the crowd, there are Satan's people. There are always Satan's people among God's people. If you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, it's all about Satan's people. The whole book, it's all about Satan's people causing trouble among God's people. Jesus gave a parable of a field of wheat and that the devil came and sowed tares in with the wheat. And the problem with wheat and tares is that you can't tell the difference between the two until right up at harvest time. It's only God knows. That's how the devil's messengers disguise themselves as angels of light. They come looking like Christians. Here you have in the crowd, no doubt, these people are standing around there. They're spies is all they are. They're mouthpiece for the devil. We know that because they went and they told the Pharisees of the things that Jesus did, but the Pharisees didn't interrogate them at all. You see, when someone came honestly and talked to the Pharisees, like the blind man, remember when Jesus healed the blind man who was born blind from birth? He's talking to them and they said, we don't even know where this man came from. And I love the blind man's response. He knows so little, but he knows so much. And he says, oh, I see. You don't know where he came from. But yet, never in the history of the world has a man who was born blind been healed and given eyes that can see. Hello, how many clues do you need? Maybe, just maybe, we know where he came from, that he has to come from God. We don't know where he came from. So when they go back and there's no interrogation, that just tells us straight away, they're on the same team. These are Satan's messengers. He has them always in a real work where Jesus is really working, they are always there. Always. Because the devil doesn't take vacations. He doesn't give his demons time off. They didn't grill him the way they grilled real believers. They came to the miracle in unbelief and they left that way. They didn't even bother to find plausible explanations for the miracle. They ran right to the Pharisees to inform them of the trouble they were in. And you know, what I see is that it's just everywhere in the Bible, and it's everywhere in life, in the Christian ministry. Satan has little trouble finding a willing tongue for his cause. He never runs out of willing tongues for his cause. That's because of the human heart. This is a truism from the Bible. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. Thus, all he needs is a heart that is hardened to Christ. 
whether it be totally in terms of Christ's rejection or whether it be a Christian who becomes like many of them in the Corinthian church that were the devil's instruments. He just needs a hardened heart because that gets bitter toward Christ or dominated by self-interest. And the subtitle of the message today is the, is the tragedy of commitment to self-interest. All he needs is a heart that's committed to self-interest rather than committed to thy will be done. And out of the abundance of that heart, it will come. And thus, he's got a potential messenger right there. Don't ever forget, it was Peter who after two and a half years of confusion and befuddlement in the minds of the disciples, Jesus said, who are people saying that I am? The answer is what they were thinking he was the whole time. Some think you're Jeremiah, come back to life. Okay, so there's this partial reincarnation belief. Who do others say? Some say you're allied to the prophet and that you've come back. And some say this and some say that. You know what they were saying? This is what we have been wrestling with the whole time. But we have now come to closure on who you are. You are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, God the Father has revealed that to you. You didn't come to your own conclusion on that. I've been with you too long to know the difference. You've been coming all this way and you still haven't got it. God the Father has intervened and brought this revelation to you. And out right of his mouth came that. It was probably one of the greatest high points of fellowship and rejoicing and a sense of accomplishment and, and going forward on the team. But it was only a very little while later that Peter stopped Jesus on the road when he was prophesying of going up to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins and raise again the third day. And Peter took him and rebuked him. And Jesus didn't even call him by name. He just went straight to the source that was coming out of his mouth. And he said, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. He had become a mouthpiece for the devil because his heart wasn't right as Jesus was sharing these things. This was not Peter's idea of how it should be done. And thus, because he had a commitment to his own self-interest in how it should be done, he played right into the hands of the devil. I'm sure he learned a lesson he never forgot. You could basically sum it up like this. When the heart is hardened to Christ, the mouth is molded for Satan. When the heart is hardened for Christ, the mouth is molded for Satan. May God help us. I mean all of us. All of us to keep our hearts in the hands of Jesus. Otherwise our tongues are going to be in our mouths are going to be in the hands of the devil. Whether it be in your home with one another. Whether it be in the church, in the hallway. Whether it be out on the job where you're right in there mixing it up with the people that don't know Christ. Telling the same kind of jokes, laughing at the same kind of jokes and on and on and on. You understand? And so may God help us. The tongue is an unwieldy member that no man can tame. And the reason is, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? But the glorious solution is that the Spirit of God has come into our hearts and He is there interceding with groanings that cannot be uttered, moving us in the right direction. And if we'll yield to Him, the tongue will naturally belong to Him and be in His hands. So Satan's messengers go to tell of this resurrection. Then we come to Satan's counsel in verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said... So here they come together. The chief priests, as I said, they're the politicians. They work directly with the Romans. And the Pharisees never really have much to do with them. And they gather together and they at least agree on one thing. We want Jesus dead. 
Isn't it something? That the only thing that could unite these opposing parties was to see the Son of God dead because he raised a man from the dead. How do you like that one? And so they come together and they form a demonic council. And they say, what shall we do? Literally, it's not a question. It's not, what do you think we ought to do, guys? Literally, it's more, if you look at the Greek, the structure is more like this. You know what? We aren't getting a thing done about murdering this guy. That's what they got together and that's how they begin the meeting. Is everybody aware we're not getting a thing done about murdering this guy? They're not perplexed. They're frustrated that he's not dead yet. And so they begin to move toward a non-stop commitment to killing Christ. It's the whole idea of we're not getting the job done. And this guy is doing more and more and more miracles. And we haven't killed him yet. If we don't kill him soon, don't you understand? Everybody in the whole nation is going to believe on him. He is the real thing. If we don't kill him soon, everybody will believe on him. It doesn't get more satanic than this. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. And really their place was their place, their position, their power. Focused, yes, around the temple, but really their power over the nation. It is a commitment to their own self-interest. And then we move from Satan's council to an individual in their midst who I call Satan's priest. Now here is an odd thing. And it's worthwhile, as I said, to slow down and look at this. Here's an odd thing. Here is the high priest, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year. He is dressed in the wonderful garb of the high priest. If you saw him walking towards you, coming down the street, you would be very impressed and you'd probably be very intimidated because he's the high priest. But this man is not a priest for God. He is in the outfit of given by God for the priesthood, but he is through and through on the inside Satan's man. He is Satan's man. That's John's point. Notice it says, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest, notice it says, that year, that year. It's not arbitrary like he just happened to be it that year. And there's one every year because first of all, under the Mosaic law, it wasn't one every year. You were high priest for life. The point John is making is that year. John is laying the weight of the whole situation onto Caiaphas. He's the man at the helm. That year. What year? The year the high priest pushed for the death of the Son of God. That year. That high priest. That man will have a special place in hell forever. That man that year said to them you know nothing at all now let's just get a little history on this guy to begin with he is a man who was appointed by the Romans not by the Jews not high priest for life under the Mosaic law because the Romans took that power away from them Caiaphas was appointed high priest in AD 18 by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus and he continued until AD 36 we bump into Annas a guy by the name of Annas And Annas is the man who had been high priest right before Caiaphas. And in the case of the high priest, he continued to exert a lot of influence and power over what went on in the nation. It's kind of like, but not the same, but like when we have an American president and then he finishes his term, but 
if he's on the news, they will say to him, Mr. President. So it's kind of like that. So you see Annas enter the picture. He still effectively has that title and that kind of respect and still a carryover influence. Plus the fact that he happened to be the father-in-law to Caiaphas is notable. So he had been high priest for some time, and he is in the picture. But at the helm of the nation when they sent Christ to his death is Caiaphas. And that is why he underlines the fact that he was steering the affairs of the nation when Christ was crucified. Now, this is an amazing thing. Caiaphas, like most of the members of the chief priests, because now we're focusing on chief priests, we're off Pharisees on the chief priests, many of them ex-high priests. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. There were the Pharisees, and there were the Sadducees and the scribes. These are the people we meet in the Bible, and then we meet the chief priests. Well, the chief priests, collectively, for the most part, were of the order of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe that you raised again after you died into the next life. They did not believe in any resurrection of any kind. They did not believe in angels. In other words, they believed in no spiritual world. Isn't this incredible that the man who is the high priest of the whole nation doesn't believe there's any life beyond this life? Does that give you any insight into why he would have the motivation to be as materialistic and committed to self-interest as he was? In the face of everything Jesus did, just write it off and be indifferent to it? He didn't believe in a resurrection. So when... You have this man who doesn't believe in a resurrection at the helm of the nation. And Jesus comes along and he raises the widow's son at Nain from the dead. And he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. That upsets him. But when he raises a man from the dead, four days dead, rotting, gooey body as we've discussed. And he comes out with pink, rosy, brand new flesh and they unwrap him. And he is standing there as living proof to everybody, including the spies from the Pharisees and the chief priests. He's a witness to all of them that Jesus Christ raised this man from a life on the other side. He called him by name and he came out. And he gave him the power in his body to come back to life. There is utterly no way to deny that. So here is this guy and these people, these chief priests that don't believe there's any life after death, but it's been proven to everyone in the whole nation there is absolutely life after death, validating Jesus' own words on the resurrection and the life. If you believe me, you'll never die. You'll live again and on and on and on. Can you imagine how it aggravated him? So what happened then? There's no interrogation. There's no effort on his part to go down and investigate because it was undeniable. He knew it was true. At this point, it's irrelevant. And so this man is a politician placed in his position by the Romans. He has no concern for the people whatsoever. His only concern, and this is the peril we all run, his only concern is his only concern, which is Caiaphas himself, a commitment to his own self-interest. That's his place. His pride is worth touching on. In John eleven forty nine, it says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Here's some insight from Josephus. The ruling classes, which would include the high priestly families, they were for the most part Sadducees. 
They're like royalty. It all makes sense, doesn't it? Most materialistic, so on, most power, all that. The historian Josephus says of them that the Sadducees, when he was alive and among them, he wrote, he said, the Sadducees are, even among themselves, rather ill-mannered in their behavior, and their intercourse verbally with their peers is as rude as it would be to aliens, end quote. In other words, the Sadducees were a very rude bunch, rude to each other and rude to everyone else. And the thing about it is, with that as historical backdrop, here is a discussion going on. The high priests gather together and they're having a discussion. Caiaphas is sitting there and he just butts in rudely. He just rudely interrupts. And suddenly this picture is becoming very clear and it's really coming to life. This man is rude, he's indifferent, he's callous, he's conscious of the superiority that he has as the one leading the people. And he makes that clear and he basically says, you know nothing at all. In other words, he stands up and he just it's like this, you guys don't know anything. They're saying to each other, you know what, we're not getting a thing done about killing him. And he jumps up and he says, that's right, you're a bunch of idiots, you don't know anything. It's just this crass, rude statement. And then follow on with him. He comes up with his plan. And he says, nor do you consider, verse 50, that it is expedient for one of us, expedient for us, that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, you must understand, given everything I've just said, this statement is hypocritically callous and utterly self-serving in the extreme. Caiaphas is not concerned about the law of Moses. He is not concerned about right and wrong. He is of the order of those people we have them today. They come to a problem and they analyze it, not in terms of right and wrong, but how is this going to affect me? Not in terms of right and wrong, but will I make more money? Not in terms of right and wrong, but will I gain from this? We live in an era very much like that, where right is wrong and wrong is right, and yes is no and no is yes and so on. All the lines are blurred, and it says, how will it affect me? Don't think in biblical terms. Don't think in prayerful terms. Don't think in thy will be done terms. Just flat out, how is this going to affect me? What's in it for me? And if there's something in it for me, I'm in. That's Caiaphas all the way. His plan... Don't you consider it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation perish? It's utterly self-serving. Sounds good, but it's utterly hypocritical. The whole thing is that this serves his lust for power. He didn't care about shedding innocent blood. You know, what if the people all get wiped out by the Romans? He didn't care about that. He's saying, in effect, if we don't get rid of Jesus, he's going to lead a rebellion. Rome will squash it and we all will die. So men, either Jesus dies or the whole nation perishes. Don't you know that? That's what he's saying. He is effectively suggesting, don't miss this and you'll always see it in the passage. He's suggesting murder under the guise of patriotism. Suggesting murder under the guise of patriotism. He's a phony. He hates Jesus. He presented a threat to Caiaphas' popularity so he wants him murdered. There is no threat of revolution here. There is not a threat from the Romans. The Romans were very tolerant of the people they conquered. That's why these guys, even though appointed by the Romans, couldn't rule their own people. The Romans didn't care when Jesus, right after this, rode into Jerusalem, right up through the eastern gate, and, and the people were throwing their 
coats and the palm branches and shouting Hosanna. The Romans didn't bother the Romans. So what Caiaphas is doing here is, is he is pushing for an illegal trial that will happen in the middle of the night. It is straight on mafia style execution without a court case, without any testimony or plea on your own behalf. In fact, when they got to the trial that they threw together really quick, can you turn to Matthew 26, 63? You see Caiaphas at work. Just hold your finger there, we'll come back. Matthew 26, 63. They had come and arrested Jesus in the garden, took him away. They had paid men to testify falsely. And they're just interrogating him with all the false witness, and Jesus just sits there. Caiaphas knows if he just sits there, he's not going to be able to indict him on anything, and he won't be able to kill him. So he begins to agitate him. And so he, the high priest answers in, in verse 63, and he says to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he's hoping he'll say something that they can consider blasphemy and then kill him. In verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you... I love the Lord. Don't you just love the Lord? Nobody intimidates Jesus. He is God with all power. Nevertheless, you, Caiaphas, you're going to live to see this day. You will die and rise again to see this day. I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. You're going to live to see me glorified, you hell-bound, Christ-rejecting, sinful rat. That is my interpretation. Certainly not the Lord's. I mean, I know that wasn't in the Lord's heart, but that's in mine. And the next verse reveals his hypocritical concern. Verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you've heard his blasphemy. Now, in Jewish culture, when you tore your clothes, it was an expression, a symbol of sadness or a, a righteous indignation. Caiaphas here tears his clothes to show great sadness that this man has blasphemed, but on the inside he's jumping up and down because he's got something he can nail him on and send him to his death and get on with his lust for power and life and enjoy it. It is the ultimate act of hypocrisy. He now had a reason to kill him and he was as happy as he could be on the inside. He faked religious zeal and he faked patriotism in a desire to get rid of Jesus. The strategy is one that is very human. Kids use it. It's a strategy of two extreme alternatives. You present two extreme alternatives as though there's no other alternative. Either he dies or the whole nation's going to die. Well, that wasn't true, but he pressured them in that way. And as illogical as it was, they followed it. Nobody raised any objections. You know why? Because they were birds of a feather flocking together. They were all committed to their own self-interest. Intimidated by his power, inundated by their own self-interest, they agreed to kill Jesus to save the nation. But listen, though the nation was not in any danger. And here's the sad part. The sad part was that killing Jesus didn't save the nation. A few decades later, to be exact, it was 70 AD, Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, came in and besieged Jerusalem, and 1,100,000 Jews died. He tore down their temple, as Jesus had prophesied earlier in John, and he took their gold, and they have never had a temple till this day. They've been scattered throughout the world. 
So killing him didn't save the nation. It brought about the judgment of God on the rejection of God, and thus they lost the nation. It destroyed it. Proverbs 19.21 says, There's many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel will stand. So here's his place, his pride, and his plan. Now let's talk about how this becomes a prophecy. If you go back to John 49, 11.49. Let's read all over this again. One of them, Caiaphas. We understand what it was from Caiaphas in. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you even consider... It is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, John adds his insight looking back to many, many years. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. This is John's insight but also that he would gather together and one children of God, all who were scattered abroad. In other words, for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews, he would die. What happened here is this. This statement from this hypocritical, callous, criminal man who is utterly self-serving is taken by a sovereign God and turned around and given full meaning because God anticipated the full condition of this guy on that day and turns it into a prophecy of what he was about to do without Caiaphas even knowing it. You say, how could God talk through Caiaphas without him even knowing it? Because at this point, Caiaphas has sunk to the level of Balaam's donkey. Right? We're in modern translations here tonight. Balaam's donkey. Balaam was riding down the road and he was working for the devil. And the devil had had his mouth by now in his heart. And he's banging away on his donkey, being mean to his donkey. And the donkey stops and turns around and says, All these years I've served you. <laughs> it's so hysterical. In Numbers 22, 28, it says, The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and he said to Balaam, What have I done to you? You've struck me these three times. What is so hysterical is Balaam talks right back to him. And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've abused me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. So here's this donkey talking to another donkey effectively. So the donkey said back to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And Balaam gets all convicted. He says, No. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head, and he fell flat on his face. So to go on would be to go into another study, but the point is God spoke through a donkey. And God is speaking through another one right here, and his name is Caiaphas. That's the point. How could God prophesy, speak through this guy? Because he can speak through anybody he wants to. He spoke through a donkey. Caiaphas wants to live like one. God speaks through his mouth. And God turns it around to be one of the greatest prophecies given. That's because God can speak through a donkey if he wants to, and because God can turn Satan's ultimate evil for ultimate good. Did you hear that? I just love that thought. Because, you see, God is on the throne. God is still on the throne. says in verse 51, he didn't say this on his own authority. See, God got involved in the picture. When man brings his worst, God can turn it to his best. When Satan brings his worst, God can turn it to his best. They poured out their wrath and fury and self-interest manifested in murdering Jesus. What did God do? 
He turned it into the greatest manifestation of His grace for that murderous mob that has ever been demonstrated in the history of the world. And it is so wonderful that man sent Jesus to the cross to murder Him. Jesus went willingly according to the plan of God to save the men that sent Him there. That's how big God is and how good God is. So that Jesus died on man's cross for man's sins. And we read in verse 53, from that day on in John 11, they plotted to put him to death. And so there it is. God is at work taking the worst and making it the best. And therefore, verse 54, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So the many, the murderers, and finally here the multitudes. In verse 56, I call them excited spectators because that's what they are. They sought Jesus and they spoke among themselves. These are those that have come up for Passover, come up to purify themselves and partake in the Passover. And they're standing around the temple area and they're just chatting, all excited. What do you think? You think you'll show up? Because the air was charged with expectancy. Jesus had come to the last two Passovers. The first Passover, he came and he cleansed the temple. The second Passover, he came and the people just absolutely adored him. They're all wondering, is he going to show up? He always does the unexpected. But they are excited for the wrong reasons. They are like so many that like to watch Jesus at work, but their interest is a detached one. They're spectators. They, like the devil's messengers and mouthpieces and all, they're always in the body of Christ. They're always in church. And they're watchers. They just want to see what Jesus is going to do next, but it's a detached interest. The sad thing about that is that it's a detached interest because the real interest in the heart is self-interest. And the sad thing is that Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So you can't really have a detached interest, be a spectator and say, well, I enjoy Jesus. I really do. But not commit your life to him. Jesus said, you're with me or you're against me because if you're with me, you gather. And if you're not with me, you scatter simply by not taking people to me. You're one or the other. And that's the way it is tonight. You're either a spectator or you're really a child of God. And the problem is what happened to the spectators, they became shallow pawns for the devil. Verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, they should report it and they might seize him. Imagine a, a more diabolical, more devilish reaction to a, the resurrection of a man from the dead than to want to kill the guy that did it. And we also know they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. They went about to kill Lazarus. Got to get rid of the evidence, you know. It was too much for these habitual spectators so that when it came time, when the people were gathered together with Pilate and it came time for the chief priests to make their move, it was too much for them to resist the influence of these powerful leaders. And they just became, I call them shallow pawns in the game because they didn't think for themselves, they didn't pray for themselves, they didn't have a cultivated personal relationship with Jesus and they did, certainly did not think in biblical terms personally. And when the time came, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they were all shouting Hosanna, thousands of them. But when he stood before Pilate, 
those that had been shouting in Luke 19, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the same people in Mark 15, 11, it says the chief priests, the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that Pilate would rather release Barnabas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call king of the Jews? I heard you shouting he was king just the other day. And they cried out, not Hosanna this time, same people. Only a few days later, they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? And they cried again all the more. It became a chant. Crucify him. Crucify him. And you can see the chief priests just stirring it up, shouting it, and they're just singing along. Crucify him. Why did they go along? Because they were so shallow. They were spectators. And a spectator without a real relationship with Jesus doesn't have what it takes to stand against the devil in any situation, really. And thus you take your place, ultimately, with the crowd that shouted for his death. And so he went to his death with the shouts of the people that had shouted Hosanna, crying for his death. Why? Because they were more committed to their own self-interest in life than they were to following the Son of God. In Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, that statement takes on so much meaning to me in the face of all this. Blessed are the pure in heart. There were many at the tomb who believed, and they saw God there. Martha and Mary saw God there. Lazarus saw God there. But there were people standing in that crowd that went back to those that took him to his death, and they never saw God there. They saw him, but they didn't. Do you understand? They heard him, but they didn't. They were unmoved by it. There are always those who are moving downward into sin and darkness and away from Christ, always, even though he's reaching out more and more, doing greater and greater things to reach to you. In John eleven fifty three, it says, From that day on they plotted to put him to death. You see, their commitment to self-interest blinded them to the work of God and his spirit, and it made them completely indifferent to his gracious work of saving souls. And when you see them, they are unable to discern the truth of what's going on in the preaching of Jesus. Thus, they are completely blind and completely indifferent and unable to discern. And the thing that renders them that way is their commitment to their self-interest. In the book of Jonah, in Jonah 2.8, King James Version says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Those that live for themselves will forsake their own mercy. They refuse to turn their heart to God. Jonah 2.8, again, in the New King James Version, says those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. You say, well, what is an idol? The thing that occupies your mind the most. That's what you worship. Jonah 2.8 and the NIV says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And here it is. Here are the many who receive Christ right there. Their whole lives change. When they died one by one, they went boom, 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 boom into paradise. They're now in heaven forever. But they got the grace that was theirs. But there were many who did not, and they forfeited it. Comes down to this. Mark it. Great light rejected. And this is even after you're a Christian. Great light rejected. 
brings a plunging into deeper darkness and a worse condition of heart than that which prompted the initial rejection. Do you follow that? Great light rejected will plunge you into a deeper darkness than the initial condition of heart that caused you to reject it in the first place. You cannot reject the loving advances of God to your life without being plunged further into darkness and further away from Him and further into commitment to your own self-interest which renders you blind and indifferent to the things you need most in life which is God and Christ. But how wonderful the opposite. There's always those side by side moving forward and upward. And here in the passage we see them. They have open, honest hearts. They're free from the bondage of self-will and commitment to self. They are those that live in the attitude of, Lord, thy will be done. Thy will be done. May God help us all to live that way, to live free. When Jesus is whispering in Martha's ear, now listen, Martha, if you just believe, you'll see the glory of God. Don't just see a corpse raised from the dead. You'll see, I want you to see it all. You're going to see people saved here. You're going to see everything. You're going to see God at work. He's taking her forward in a personal way. And there are always those in our midst. God's talking to them. They're moving forward as others are moving downward into the darkness, rejecting the great light. The question is, which one are you today? What do you want to be? Only you can make that choice. I want to be upward and onward and free. I've lived long enough the other way in my life, and I don't want to go back. Let's pray. Father, we give our hearts to you now, Lord. We open our hearts to you, Lord. We pray again as we did in the beginning. Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come to our hearts and lives. We believe, Lord, and we want to see your glory. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a God so unkind to bless that we will. For those, Lord, tonight that don't know you, that have not known this glory and this love and this freedom, we unite our hearts in faith and ask God that this would be the night they would let go. And if you're in that place tonight, just open your heart and ask Jesus to save you from your sins and to give you his life. You've lived yours. You've proven what you could do with it. Now let him prove to you what he can do if you give him a chance. Surrender your life to Christ now. Ask him to come in. Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you for your work of saving grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.